Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, lots of ways of getting our show, as well as the way that you obviously are listening to us right now. You can download directly from our website, techcentral.ie. Uh, you can use a smartphone podcast app, tons of them around. iTunes always there for you, or you can turn us on and listen to us on the radio. There's a thought. Every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. My name's Dusty. Joining me as always is editor of Tech Central, Niall Kitson and Niall, uh, we're having a look at the Ireland's journey to the digital future, according to Virgin Media. Yeah, well, every year Virgin Media, or, or UPC as it was back in the day, uh, puts out a, a digital insights report, and their report for 2016 is out. And uh, it's thrown up a few interesting figures that I think we're going to argue about in a typically robust manner. But uh, just, just to start off, um, apparently 94% of us shop online every month, of which... The average spend per month online is €80, which represents 6% of our gross domestic product. Right, there's three figures alone, Dusty. Do they sound right to you? Agree, disagree in your own experience? Oh, I would. Uh, I'm going to get through this real quickly. I would uh, agree that the spending is up and it is probably high. I don't think the numbers are anywhere as high as they are saying, but it's definitely all good and money is being spent. Move on to the next one. I've got more to say. Okay, right. We'll get into the fun <laughs> stuff now. Yes, all that commerce stuff. Fair enough. Uh, except for the fact that 60% of what we spend online goes out of the country, uh, which I think is quite interesting. But anyway, uh, right into the sort of the social stats of you know how do we interact with each other uh, thanks to the internet. So 80% of people who respond to to the survey said technology makes them happy. Okay, Dusty, we use technology. Does it actually make you happy? I think that what they did was they took the questionnaire and the results and they gave them to a work experience person who completely changed the meaning. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I can't imagine that anybody would say that technology actually makes me happy. All right. But I would say that I'm happier using technology. (laughs) I would say that technology solves my problems. I'm not sure it makes me happy, yes. but it solves my exactly. problems. Exactly. But the fact that it solves your problems make you happy, and yeah, my life is better, but the actual technology itself doesn't make me happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, but I get, I get the gist of what they're saying, and I do agree with the, the gist of what they're saying. Yeah, okay, right. We'll, we'll park that. I, personally, I think it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a strange question. For me, technology is working when you don't really notice it. You know? Yes. Ah, wow. That kind of the, the, the fact that it's almost invisible is what makes it magic. Yeah, it should be. Yes. Technology should be invisible. You shouldn't go, wow, that's a brilliant solution to that. You shouldn't notice it. That's how you know it's actually working. I love it. There was another stat in there and I thought it was quite interesting about the amount of people who say that they use um, uh, uh, technology for studying and for educational uses, which I think this number is ridiculously high. What is it? Uh, 71% they said. Personally, I think that's a little bit low. Um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm picking on this because um, as a journalist, uh, a little bit of a bad habit, but everybody does it. One of my first port of calls, if I just want to get a sense of something that I'm writing on, if I don't know anything about it already or I don't know an expert that I can ask, you go to Wikipedia. You, you just even, you know, do not quote Wikipedia on anything. You know, it is not a relevant, it, it is not a reliable source. 
But absolutely, if not. you want to get a flavour of something before you actually start researching it properly, yeah, go to Wikipedia. Now, I know secondary school teachers that are saying to me, kids are actually copying and pasting from Wikipedia. Whole set. I, I find that Listen, you, you think that's bad, all right? You think that's bad. There's a lot more that we need to talk to. But on, on the studying side of things, I think the number is too high for the people who say that they're studying. 71% of the population is not in education in order to use it for studying. But I would say, again, it's back to the wording. I would say 71% of the population probably find technology in the internet useful for learning things as in information. We're talking about what time is the bus going to leave at? That kind of information. Okay, well, in that case, I think the number is too low. Maybe, maybe again, it was a, a question of, uh, you know, it was a badly worded question. But listen, speaking, speaking of Wikipedia, right, using the kids in class copying from Wikipedia is bad. I happened to be in a courtroom one day, all right, just just wanting, watching it, whatever was going on. I'm one of the senior counsels, a senior counsel, right? This is a man who I guarantee you is earning, you know, 200,000 euro a year, okay? Um, and is at the top of his game. He's at the top of his profession he's an extremely intelligent person and he is actually standing there in front of the high court judges and saying well I believe you'll find it says on Wikipedia that blah 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 could not believe it quoting Wikipedia in a courtroom and I just went that man deserves to lose whatever the case is Um, the other thing now that I think is actually very interesting in this is and I actually think we both agree on this is how technology and the internet has helped people connect yeah i think this is an interesting stat um apparently 65 percent of people say they feel more connected because of the internet now or it says something very interesting about our society in which we live because maybe we're getting into semantics here a little bit of you know there's feeling connected in that you can message anyone you want in your linkedin or your facebook or whoever you have on whatsapp But when you're talking about feeling connected, maybe being connected to society at large, perhaps, you know, being connected with one's larger culture, do you like one to one? Mm. Yeah, okay, you can feel more connected. But do you feel more Irish as a result of using the Internet? Yeah. Oh, God, no. Um I th- I think it's interesting in that I d- again I think you've got to look at the wording of it uh, and when you say connected you can't just say connected in general so you, what you're saying about actually having personal connections with people that you meet hug shake hands with have sex with whatever that happens to be all right obviously you don't get that from um technology however for family who might be living in Canada or Australia uh, definitely a lot more connected with those people. And then with WhatsApp and these kind of Facebook and everything like that, you get to hear what people are up to a little bit more and you feel a little bit more connected to them. And I think definitely when they say that uh, 65% of people feel more connected, it's in that sense that they mean. Okay, right. Well, we could, we could argue the point, but we've, we've got more stats to, to throw out at this. So um... Okay. Well, actually, I want, to, I want to throw in just one more, okay? okay? Um, and, and this is the one that uh, you are a journalist and um, I'm kind of involved in news and stories and stuff like that as well. This is the one that scares me the most, all right? Okay. And that's where people get their news from. Okay. Okay, now let me give it to you just, okay, so 59% of people say they get their news from TV. That's mm-hmm. fine. I've yeah. no problem with that, Okay. Uh, 43% say that they get it from news websites. Do you know, even that I'm happy with, all right? 
41% say that they get it from radio. 38% say they get it from printing newspapers. That's fine. All right. That's all good. Do you know the one that really scares the willy off me? What? 36% of people get their news from social media. Um, yeah. Now, this, this cuts both ways. Uh, I mean, I subscribe to various publications on Twitter, right? So I will get, you know, the New York Times, the Guardian, the BBC... And if it's a case of that's where I get my news from on social media, that's fine. That's that's one thing. However, yes, and I agree with you on the scary parts. If you're relying on Facebook algorithms to deliver the news to you, you are out of luck. Exactly. The the, the story, and we'll wrap it up with, it, with, with with this, that really scares me the most when, when I talk about getting your news from uh, uh, from social media, is just this week, uh, Jacques Chirac, who was uh, uh, one of the former French uh, prime ministers or presidents or something like that. Uh, however, he's been taken ill in hospital and, he, and he's not well. He had to come back from holidays and stuff like that. Sounds by the likes of it, he's, he's on his last legs, right? Okay. Um, but a former minister of his tweeted that he died Jumping the gun a little bit. Well, it is. But of course, it was picked up by other reputable news sources and, of course, went around social media. And now there's hundreds of thousands of people who think that this poor man who's in the process of dying is actually dead. Already. Exactly. Yeah. And even if you go back to, I suppose when a story breaks, um, uh, when Michael Jackson died, I actually found that out on Facebook. I hate to say it, uh, but I was literally just, you know, in the middle of, of, of talking to somebody and then somebody else popped in. And can't, I can't believe uh, Michael Jackson's dead. And you went, what? And then I went off and checked it with a yeah, this, this happens every so often well, I that, just, you know, these ridiculous rumours start that mm, somebody's died. And they haven't. Mm. Some scary stuff in there. Uh, I think it's a great survey. And I think uh, basically what it's saying is that we are using the internet more. We're getting more out of the internet. We're spending more money on the internet. And it's all up and up. Uh, half of the figures I don't believe. Um, um, I would say that I believe 52% of uh, their statistics. How's that? This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. If you have an idea and your idea makes money, I think it's only fair that you get paid for it. Do you? Of course you do. Uh, that's what's called intellectual property. But intellectual property is a very complicated area, especially when money gets involved in it. So to find out more about it, because we do talk about it a lot on the uh, on the programme, we decided to consult an Irish expert on the matter. And early in the week, uh, Niall went and he spoke to Dr. Christina Gates about IP. I'm out in the offices of Tompkins on Dartmouth Road today. Um, now, for those who aren't uh, familiar with Tompkins, it's a, a legal firm that specialises in intellectual property. And uh, I'm meeting with one of the partners and patent uh, attorney, Dr. Christina Gates, this morning. And we're going to talk a little bit about the pros and cons of intellectual property um, and what companies can do to preserve theirs. And I guess to start off, Intellectual property has kind of, um, it's kind of a double-edged sword, uh, and it gets varying degrees of coverage, positive and negative, um, oftentimes because it relates to things that do exist, things as concrete as microchips and, you know, things that go into our mobile phones and our PCs, but sometimes it feels like it applies to things that necessarily don't exist, like taking an existing idea and maybe coming up with a different way of doing it, or just coming up with a, a common process and even putting it on a computer. Um, so I suppose, Christina, is that a fair summation of what intellectual property is? Well, I suppose you're essentially talking about patents there. And patents, yeah, there's an upside and a downside to patents. So if you are a company, uh, you innovate, 
you've got a patent for something, you're in a position to stop other people competing with you. That's very advantageous. The other side of that is there are other companies are able to stop you doing certain things and, and that might cause you a problem. So often those problems arise because the, a company hasn't checked out what the IP position of their competitors is. They have no idea as they're about to launch a product whether or not there is patent protection that would stop them. And the same applies to trademark protection. People often uh, come up with a new brand name, new logo, and they actually haven't checked whether or not someone else uses that. So lastly, I guess it's, it's worth noting, what exactly can you protect? In terms of patent protection, you can protect most things. So obviously you can protect things like devices, equipment, um, chemical processes, chemicals, diagnostics, medical devices, um, computer hardware. Um, methods tend to be more difficult to protect, um, particularly in the software and computer implemented invention sphere. Um, you do hear uh, examples of, you know, being able to do email on a touch screen, so things quite as vague as that. Do, do you actually come across things? I have never come across anything as vague as that. Sometimes people think they'd like to protect that. But the deal for a patent is you're getting a 20-year monopoly for your invention. And in return for that, you have to explain how to carry out the invention to the, you know, the, what we call the skilled person. So if you don't know how to do email on a touch screen or you can't say exactly what steps are involved, you're not going to get a patent for it. Um, so over the years, you know, people have come to me saying, you know, well, I, you know, I'd like to put a catalytic converter in cars or I'd like to stop people hijacking planes. And my first question is, how? How will you do that? Because that's what you can protect. You can protect your method. Obviously, a patent maybe can cover one more than one method of doing something as long as it's the, as the same thing you're trying to do. Um, but you do have to know you do have to know how to carry out the invention and you and one of the reasons for that is you do have to know what you want to stop people doing if you want to enforce your patent so if you're so vague that no one can work out um what this method is or what this device is you're never going to get a patent for it yeah i think uh apple and samsung were were locked in one for or apple and google actually over android and swipe to unlock so uh you know things can be as simple as that without people really knowing Yes, but at the back of Swipe to Unlock, there's a method for doing that. And there is a series of steps and the data is processed in a particular way. And that brings about the effect. And that's one of the reasons why it's sort of a a number of years since people tried to protect this. But people were trying to protect things that we did with a pen and a piece of paper or we did in our heads. And we simply did them on the computer. And they couldn't get patent protection for that generally because... We were simply using a computer to do what a computer does does normally, which is sort of crunch numbers and compute things. Um, the, the idea itself wasn't new. The idea of an auction isn't new. That's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. So doing it on a computer per se isn't new unless you have to program the computer in a very particular way to achieve the end result. Uh, I suppose moving across to the subject of patents again, 
Patents are, are quite an, an interesting field, um, depending on your, where a patent is registered as well, because you might think you come up with a, a very innovative idea and the same protections or the same processes should apply internationally or at least some measure of harmonization. So to which extent are we seeing um, some level of consistency across jurisdictions and is there much in the way of diversification, say when you're exploring very different markets like say the US or China? Generally speaking, patent law is harmonised around the world. So to get a patent anywhere in the world you have to have something that is new, something that someone hasn't done before. And it also has to be something that's not obvious to everyone. Um, And that standard applies everywhere. There's difference in the fine detail, and there are slight differences in what various jurisdictions consider to be patentable. Uh, Certain things in the US, it's much harder to get patent protection for things like diagnostics, Um, Whereas that isn't a problem anywhere in the world, and that's a result of how the US case law has developed. Um, For a long time, it was more difficult to get patent protection for software-related inventions in Europe, whereas it was straightforward in the US as a result of their uh, judicial uh, judgments in the last few years. That has also become tougher. Um, But generally speaking most things are protectable in most jurisdictions. I think one of the interesting things about um, patent law in the States is the extent to which cases are decided in very small uh, jurisdictions. For example, we're we're looking at East East Texas seems to be a hotbed Mm. of um, patent decisions. So what is special about East Texas? Is it it expertise or is it attitude? I think it's, it's... A bit of all of those things. I think there is an expertise in the court system there. But, uh, Texas is considered to be a pro-patentee uh, jurisdiction, so naturally people would like to people who own patents would like to have their cases held there. But at the same time, once a jurisdiction has a track record in hearing IP cases, everyone feels more comfortable that the decisions of the court will be fair. Uh, and that's a very important thing for co- for companies. If if you go to a jurisdiction where no one has ever heard a patent or a trademark case uh, before, it is possible that you'll get an odd um, decision. Companies need certainty. They don't need to get a lucky win or a very unlucky loss. They would rather go to somewhere like East Texas where there is a track record that they can rely on. So, you, which is why I suppose you have an awful lot of brass plate companies setting up there. And we actually have a, a few very interesting cases where brass plate companies over there, they actually won't talk about what patents they, they actually hold. Um, that, you know, the, these are firms that I, I don't want to say hoover up patents, but, you know, they, they certainly gather them and they represent um, sort of uh, people that might have had an idea at some stage and have let a patent lapse or something. Uh, well, I mean, if the patent has lapsed, there's nothing they can do about it. What they tend to do is buy up patents from possibly from individual inventors who don't have the money to commercialise um, or the money to defend their patent or even to keep it in force. Um, so, yes, that does happen. 
And there is a, a kind of a line between companies that do these things that, that buy up patents because they, for whatever reason, they haven't been commercialized. And they will argue that they are protecting the interests of the patent holder. But from, say, another company's perspective, um, particularly startups, um, these can be um, sort of very stifling to innovation because all of a sudden they, they might have a, a large entity breathing down their necks and they don't have the means to defend it. I, I suppose that's one way to look at it. However, you know, if, if this individual inventor had maintained their patent themselves and not sold it uh, they also would be in a position to stop the company um, so I suppose you could say well maybe the individual inventors aren't going to go around suing everybody um, and it's more likely if, the, if they are bought up so do you think in the world so do you think in the case of companies that do fall foul of patent trolls that it can be a case where they haven't done their homework, where, you know, a lot of these places, they actually might be quite amenable to being approached, say, if you want to say, I want to do some work on this, let's do a deal ahead of time. Well, I mean, if it's a patent troll, what they're looking for is money. They're not looking to compete with you in the marketplace. So every company, before it launches a product, should be checking whether or not someone else has patent protection in place that could potentially prevent them from doing something. So, for example, if you operate in the UK and you're a small company about to launch a product, there may be no patent in the UK, but have you checked out to find that out? And just because there's no patent in the UK, there may well be a patent in the US. So when you come to market into the US, have you checked that out? Those are very important things to do before you launch a product. And in my experience, it is relatively rare for someone to refuse to grant you a license unless they are directly competing in your space. And often that is not the case. I mean, technology can be applied in so many different ways that often um, a piece of IP might have half a dozen different applications and the, the companies that might be exploiting those uh, are, are all working in quite different spheres. So the, the issue of granting a licence, for example, if you had a, a medical device that was uh, useful in humans, uh, those companies may well not want to um, corner the veterinary sphere. They might be quite happy to let another company do that. So there is quite a, a lot of potential for licensing IP um, I think sometimes people let the fact that there's an existing patent stop them in their tracks without exploring whether or not they could uh, get a licence. Obviously, when someone uh, wants a licence, that there may be an element of bargaining about what, what the licence fee is going to be. Um, but I would say to people, don't give up. Try, try and see, can you get the licence? I have a client here, a local Irish client, who found a patent that was problematic for him. He's just bought it. Right. So, problem. so um, you know, there, there is always that let's make a deal aspect yeah. to it. Uh, I'm a great believer in let's make a deal. <laughs> owning half of something is better than owning all of nothing. And um, do, do you think there are still firms out there that their sole interest is trolling, that they aren't interested in making a deal, that they think we can just keep recycling this patent and litigating numerous times for it? Uh, well, I, I, I mean, I... I don't see why. I mean, the point of a troll is to make money. So you have to license people to make money. So when it comes to a startup firm that has an idea, um, what advice 
would you give to them, you know, in terms of researching what's out there, but also in terms of very basic things they can do to start protecting themselves? The most important thing you have to realise is that to get a patent, your idea has to be new. And the definition of new is that you haven't disclosed it to anyone. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't, you can't talk about it within your business. Um, if you have to get components made, um, you can approach companies under an NDA, get the components made. You might need to get tests carried out, do that. But if you start putting things up on a web page or you start talking to people in the pub or you start going to sales um, meetings and, and talking to people about your idea, you may well have destroyed the possibility of getting patent protection. So you can talk in broad terms about, I have you know, a device that does X, Y or Z, as long as it's not apparent how it's done, because that's what you're going to get the patent for. I think um, parallel development is a, is a term that's thrown about, certainly in the movie industry when it comes to sort of making films. Um, so well, where exactly should we start instilling this awareness of intellectual property? Are we looking for, you know, entrepreneurs in, in the business sphere to look after that? Or should we be looking more towards, say, third level science courses? I, I do think third level is it's very important. And it's not just science courses. Um, I think business courses and law courses, bear in mind that there are, you know, in any small business, it's not just scientists um, who are working. The business team, the legal team and the marketing team also need to be conscious that they potentially have IP that's worth protecting. And I do think there needs to be more education at third level as to the, um, I suppose, the business advantages of protecting your IP, because that's what it's about if you're a if you're a small company, you're claiming you have an innovative product, you can do something other people can't do. Having IP around that gives you credibility. Yeah, you, I mean, it's all very well to say something is innovative, but if you have a patent, it, it is innovative. You know, you've you've proved that. Also, when you have an IP position, you have you have value in your business. That's worth buying. You're worth being bought out because of your IP. That's an asset you build into the business. And I think often startup companies don't think about that. They're thinking about the product. Um, whereas building up a, a you know an IP portfolio is actually putting so much value into their company. And the other thing that that is important about IP is that you can use it defensively. So if someone threatens to sue you for patent infringement, you may be able to say to them, well, actually, you're infringing my patent, so let's call it quits. Mm -hmm. So it's a defence as well. And uh, when it comes to sort of defending that space, uh, because you are sort of dealing with various international jurisdictions, to what extent are there one-stop shops? I mean, as a, an Irish legal firm... Uh, are your clients international as well as as well as local? Yes, what we do for the local clients is help them get IP protection here in Ireland, the UK or in Europe, because we're qualified to do all of that. But over the years, we've built up a network of contacts in the US, in Japan, in Australia or, or wherever. So we're able to, to hook our Irish clients up and to handle for them the, the work uh, out to the US. And for us, knowing the, the company 
knowing the invention, knowing the trademark, being able to advise them on how to do all of that. And at the same time then, a lot of our business is coming from outside Ireland uh, into the European Union. So we would be handling a lot of work for US companies uh, coming into Europe. And the same maybe for Australian companies or Canadian companies, uh, people who aren't able to work themselves in the EU. And do you find there's any measure of a, a culture clash? I mean, especially one imagines American companies might be slightly reluctant to ditch their their, their values in, in a sense, or is, is it very much, um, I don't want to say an open playing field, but do the same sort of um, mindsets apply that, look, it's going to be slightly different elsewhere. It doesn't really matter where you're practising. I think people... Um I think people adjust to that relatively easily. A lot of IP um, objections to either patents or trademarks, they're very personal. It's an individual person looking at the thing thinking, oh yeah, well, you know, it's kind of obvious to do that or that trademark isn't particularly distinctive. Um, So there's a lot of of a, a personal view in that. So I think people get used to the fact that you know, there'll be slight differences from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Dr. Christina Gates. Now, just before we go this week, uh, Niall is still with us. Niall, what's our one more thing, the the one story that we just couldn't squeeze into the podcast this week? Yeah, our our one more thing for this week is uh, apparently Apple is making eyes at McLaren. Or are they? So uh, if you want to find more about that, uh, go on to techcentral.ie. Grand, that's a story that's uh, going to rumble on for a few days as well. So you get more for that on the website, along with hourly updates and daily newsletters and more, of course, uh, from techcentral.ie, as well as our tech radio show online and every Friday at six on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Thank you so much for listening today. Do have a great weekend. Until next week, for myself, Dusty, and from Nile Kitson at Tech Central HQ, take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.